What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. People like you must create. That's what you were brought into this world to do, Bernadette. If you don't, you become a menace to society. Lawrence Fishburne giving a little pep talk to Kate Blanchett's Bernadette, a former architect who goes AWOL in the new Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Bernadette, an adaptation of a 2012 best-selling novel. It's directed by Richard Linklater, he of Boyhood and the Before Trilogy. Critical response to the film has been pretty negative. This week on the show, we'll tell you why that's wrong. Kate Blanchett might have something to do with that. Plus, 1932's Shanghai Express. It's the third film in our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon. All that and more, Richard Linklater, Josh, ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, we left Marlena Dietrich wandering into the Moroccan desert the victim of a doomed love affair with Gary Cooper. At least that's how we cynically read the ending of that film, Josh. This week, we find Dietrich slightly better off on a train bound for Shanghai in 1932's Shanghai Express, the third film in our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon. I'm glad Dietrich made it out of the desert, and I'm also glad Cooper stayed there. (laughs) First, though, where are all those positive reviews for Where You Go, Bernadette? We've got you covered. We'll never guess what happened. She disappeared. Bernadette. What? She didn't just vanish. I'm going to get my gear. Bernadette! Bernadette. Bernadette. Oof. Josh, neither of us read Maria Semple's best-selling book, Where'd You Go, Bernadette, when it was released in 2012, nor did we catch up with it before seeing and sitting down here to review Richard Linklater's adaptation, starring Kate Blanchett as a once-brilliant architect living in Seattle who adores her 15-year-old daughter, B, is disconnected from but still loves her tech mogul husband, Elgin, and loathes pretty much everyone else she's forced to encounter. As longtime listeners know, we disagree on the issue of doing literary homework. Your excuse is time. While I wouldn't have picked up those pages, even if I mysteriously disappeared on a weeks-long journey with nothing to occupy me but simple story. Analyzing the choices that produce an adaptation is fun and critically stimulating, but I fear I'm doing the film a disservice by watching it first through the lens of the source material. Now, I haven't consumed enough criticism of Linklater's version to suggest that this inevitability is what's preventing more reviewers from embracing it, but I've picked up on at least two bold departures. First, the novel's form is epistolary, with B reading and commenting on correspondence, emails, transcripts, memos, and other documents. Second, the title question isn't rhetorical or metaphorical. Bernadette's whereabouts are truly a mystery, with B playing the role of detective, looking for clues to determine where her mother vanished to just a few days before the family was set to depart for Antarctica. Abandoning the epistolary structure seems pretty straightforward. Reading words on a page can be thrilling. On the page, not so much on the screen. The choice also paves the way for Bernadette to become an active player in her story. In fact, the dominant player in her story, making it an attractive vehicle for a seasoned striking performer like Blanchett. But Linklater doesn't bother holding viewers in suspense about where Bernadette went. Not only is that secret revealed to the audience in a flash forward that, if I recall correctly might be the opening shot of the movie, it was in the trailer. 
Josh, with my book before movie position firmly established, I'm of course not going to ask you to speculate whether a more faithful adaptation by Linklater or anyone else would have been a more or less satisfying one. But I will ask you if Linklater's decision to spoil the surprise made Where'd You Go, Bernadette the movie a satisfying one, and if that decision offers any insight into why the filmmaker best known for the talky before trilogy and trippier fare like Slacker, Waking Life, and A Scanner Darkly was drawn to the book in the first place. Well, to be clear, first off, about why I do like to read books beforehand, it's not so that I can use faithfulness as any sort of critical criteria. I'm not too worried about that. It's just an excuse to read an often a classic that I never got to or a novel that people have said is really good. So I don't know how much it might have changed my experience of this film. I My guess as to why Linklater did that is, well, you mentioned one thing. Then you get Kate Blanchett in your movie and right. you're going to make it casting a teen actor in the role. Yeah. And you're going to make it about her. Um, and I'm glad he did that because she's probably the best thing in this movie. Also, I think he wants to emphasize the obvious metaphorical quality of the title. Mm-hmm. And that is not only really, I imagine, what the book was about, sure. even if it was framed as a mystery. Yeah, even if uh, it was literal. It's more of an exploration of this woman at this point in her life. And that's the sort of thing so many Linklater films have been interested in, particularly family dynamics, you could say, but absolutely relationships of any kind. The dynamics of close, often complicated, mm-hmm. troubled relationships, whether these are the subjects of his personal films, if you want to use that term, or even in some of his other films that maybe are adapting, as the case is here, material of other people. I think that's something that he is interested in exploring in his cinema. And so why not get right to it? And I was happy for that. I do think, you know, some of the the whole Antarctica contrivance, it feels like a contrivance in this telling of the story in this movie, I don't think those sorts of plot points are this movie's strength. I can understand why this hasn't gotten rave reviews. Mm-hmm. There are definitely issues here, and we can maybe spend some time on them. But I think in the areas that Linklater has always been good at and has always been a strength of his films, I think that's where Where'd You Go, Bernadette, really shines. I think there are moments of rough, mm-hmm. tough honest truth here that the character that Bernadette has to face, that her family has to face about her. And um, we could talk about this a little bit. Maybe they could have faced more about themselves. I want as as the men who are on the other side of this story, I think we should spend some time on how the movie treats her husband. I think he gets off. I really like Billy Crudup in this movie. I think Billy Crudup is great. I think he gets off a little easy. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think those are all the things that Linklater is interested in by putting them at the forefront. I think it allows this movie to be as good as it is, which I think is pretty good. Well, redemption for Richard Linklater then. All these negative reviews, and maybe that's even a little bit harsh. I looked at Rotten Tomatoes, and I think it was at a 42, which really just means 8% under half of all critics gave it a not positive review, gave it, felt, it a negative review. It felt good to, to be on the side of trying to push that towards, yeah. towards a fresh rating for Absolutely. Once. And I don't know if us adding our reviews is going to be enough to overcome that 8%, but we are in his corner here. Even if we're not 
overly enthusiastic. It's not like I'm suggesting this movie is even in his top 10, but I do think it's worth talking about for sure and worth seeing. And I think you do recognize Linklater's hand in multiple ways. You mentioned it beyond the shades of boyhood and not only some of the relationships, but the mother-child dynamic specifically in that movie. The central question of this film, Bernadette, whether an artist as talented as Bernadette, who truly does see the world in a unique way, can go through life without creating. That's fundamentally what this movie is about. And if you think back on so many of his films, discovering or rediscovering your voice is what drives so many of those movies. And I'll even jump ahead. Can't really spoil anything, especially as I said, Linklater kind of spoils it at the beginning. But there's a wonderful touch over the end credits of this movie. It made me think about a point you brought up with Booksmart, which also has a great end credit sequence where we see them. I think they're in like the bathroom of the school, the high school kids, and they're getting condoms that are filled with water thrown mm-hmm. at them like they're water balloons. And it's in slow motion. It actually does, even though it's just this end of film kind of amusing diversion, it actually does add to our experience of the movie and our understanding sure. of these characters. And at the very end of this movie, we do actually see the process of something being created, which makes total sense based on the film, but also based on it being a film directed by Linklater. Of course, a movie this focused on the creative process is going to follow through and actually show us that process in action. And going back to my question about kind of why make the movie, what would have even drawn him to this material? I wonder if that connection for him, the personal in for him beyond the other things we've mentioned, was the challenge of taking Semple's description of Bernadette's brilliant architecture and taking it from the page and actually bringing it to life. It's one thing, and there's a certain art required in describing architecture that's brilliant and the choices a brilliant architect makes. On the page, you have to have a certain skill to do that and conjure the images in the reader's mind. But Linklater says, you know what, I'm going to take a stab at actually designing those elements and show them to the audience. I love that touch. Yeah, the production design, you'll notice. So they're living in this enormous mansion that's dilapidated. It's a sign of her disinterest in pursuing her craft. She bought it with great intentions Mm -hmm. and just has not been able to move herself to follow through on that. But there are these craft touches on the walls where you'll see books that have been somehow attached to the wall with the pages fanned out. And there's another touch like that that's escaping me right now. But you see that craft in the background in the production design that reminds you that's a crucial part of her or was at one point. Yeah. And I think you nailed it in terms of Linklater clearly wanting to focus on the metaphorical side and not the literal side of this question. But again, of course, the filmmaker, I think you associate with hanging out and observing behavior and going back to boyhood, trying to find magic in the everyday, is going to abandon the suspense, say, forget any contrivance, no matter how skilled I am with it, I'm not even going to go down that path. It's as if Linklater understands that it's not where you ended up, but what brought you there and what you do when you get there that really matters. I think that's what matters in this film. So you've mentioned Boyhood twice, and I sense that one reason this isn't being as embraced, I mean, it's not nearly the undertaking or the project that Boyhood was, but it also does not have Boyhood's tone, even though it's considering some of the same relationship questions. And that was probably one of the clear failings for me, is that it it was very broadly comic in some instances, and then it would shift to something much more serious. There wasn't quite 
the control of tone and maybe it makes sense that he's not working with his own material. There are two other screenwriters credited on this in addition to him. So in addition to it being an adaptation and it made me think about halfway through and I swear, even though he's probably my favorite working filmmaker, I don't do this a lot. I don't often say, you know, who should be making this, but there was that shift in melancholy and just enough humor that I thought, this might have been an adaptation Wes Anderson could have handled. The relationship dynamics, um, the way it considers depression and yeah. seriously considers it. And, of course, the architecture, design. the, the design element design. we talked yeah. about. Um, so I thought, you know, that sort of whatever that Wes aesthetic is in terms of tone, if it had been applied here, I think it might have been a little better of a fit. Now, that being said, there are two scenes where – Linklater brings in his own tone and has complete control of it. And they're the ones that really rescued the movie for me. And one is the confrontation she has with her neighbor, played by Kristen Wiig, who has been bickering with her passive aggressively back and forth for much of the film. And this comes to a head at one point. Her daughter, B, played by Emma Nelson, is also in the car. And they just let loose at each other in a way all sort of the upper class niceties fall aside. Blanchett goes she's trying to restrain her anger Kristen Wiig lets go this surface nice neighborness that she's had and they just let each other have it and it's a wake-up call sent in both directions at once and I felt that that had again the rawness and the honesty that I did recognize from his movies the other one the other scene I want to make sure we talk about is more formally of a piece with some other things that Linklater has done because it's an extended parallel sequence, and we heard a bit of it at the top of the show, where Bernadette is confiding with a colleague, played by Lawrence Fishburne, at the same time that Billy Crudup's Elgin is talking to a therapist, bringing his concerns about Bernadette to her. And we go back and forth between the two of them, and again, it gets right into the dirty messiness of their relationship. It allows for two powerhouse acting Opportunities mm-hmm. I mean, and Blanchett, of course, kills it there. Crudup is very good as well. This is kind of where I said I wish he took on a little as Elgin, a little culpability for his part in their relationship. But that going back and forth between them, um, what it really did for me also is nicely set up the ending, which I hope we can get to in a little bit. But I thought those two sequences stood out to me as maybe the most link letter moments in the movie, and they were so good they carried me through a lot of it. Yeah, we really had a very similar experience watching this film because that knockdown drag out scene in the street was a key one for me and one where I realized that I was really in sync with this movie. And it's a moment where B definitely gets the final word of admonishment with Audrey. She's defending her mom and we're definitely on her side and probably on Bernadette's side for most of that battle. But There's a lot of truth in what Audrey says, even if we do most of the time throughout this movie see her as obnoxious and ridiculous. And Bernadette, I think despite her cynicism and the misanthropy that we do see in her, she knows Audrey's right in those moments. She acknowledges that she's right. That's what stings her. We see that She almost handles it well. She almost does. You see her trying so hard. That's why it's a great scene. No, it really is. And I think that Bernadette could have been played by Blanchett and depicted more by Linklater as someone who's just smug and self-righteous and still have been a lot of fun to watch. Maybe someone along the lines of Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. I'm not a fan of that film anymore, but there's a certain allure in watching him kind of be this egocentric monster that he is. But Linklater, and we should acknowledge writing the film here, I think 
one of those cases where on his own, but also after some other people were involved, Vince Palmo mm-hmm. and Halle Gent, Linkler is just too truthful and allows for shades to these characters. And I think you see it as well in another scene with Judy Greer, the one where there is an intervention scene. And in that moment, the thing I was constantly aware of is that everything Judy Greer's character saying as this therapist is correct. Everything Elgin is saying is correct. And everything Bernadette is saying at times is wrong. And the opposite is true for each of them as well throughout that sequence, because Linklater portrays it as if all of their perspectives are valid and all of these things can be true at once. And as slight as this film may be overall, there aren't a lot of films, especially comedies that are as broad as this one, that also do give us that much truth in those moments. It's interesting that you mentioned the intervention scene, but don't mention the other two people in it because I do like what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. about that scene, but then it also is very revealing of the way the book was a hindrance to Linklater, I think, because there is Elgin's personal assistant who is, for some inexplicable reason, also a mother at their kid's school. And you get the impression this is like a really high society school. So, yes. so you're already you're wondering why is she his assistant if she's some rich neighbor? And there's also – we're not even going to get into the FBI plot, I hope, because these are examples of – they must be elements from the book to some degree. Yeah. That are dragged in and and those two people, there's an FBI agent and that assistant in this intervention. And the moment Blanchett herself even says, why are you here? It's meant to be played for laughs, but it also shows, yeah, why, why is she here? It's a, it's a really obvious instance of the book getting in its way. It's one of those instances where even if we had not known this was an adaptation, we knew nothing about it Mm -hmm. and just went into it you would say, oh, this must be adapted from a book because otherwise none of this would be happening. No, I agree with that overall assessment, though I will point out that the way that character is at least portrayed allows for some complexity and shades as well insofar as she's someone who clearly despises Bernadette and there's really no reason that she should be there. But at the same time, she is actually this capable assistant who admires her boss and the movie at least sets up that you understand why she would really want to work for him and kind of serve him and she's she's good at it so i'm just saying a broader kind of dumber comedy would have just set her up as an object of scorn for bernadette and the movie just it goes a little bit deeper okay i'll say a little bit (laughs) okay i do want to go back to crud up real quick i had mentioned to sam over slack how much I really enjoyed his performance in this film. And that's rare because despite my love for Almost Famous, I'm not a big fan of Crudup overall. Hmm. It's rare that I can think of any movie I've watched where I come away really thinking, man, Billy Crudup just nailed it. And Sam, as he usually does, nailed it with the word he used to describe him. He said, yeah, I'm with you. He tends to be a bit severe. (laughs) There's not much fun to his character. And I'd say that there's a little more fun to Elgin here, and there's a little less severity, though he's still a little bit uptight and he's overly serious, but there is a humble charisma to him. And maybe we don't see, Josh, the culpability that you fully wanted to see, but I definitely sensed, especially in that scene with Greer, I really think the performance brings this out, a sense of regret or at least a sadness that really comes through where you do understand that he isn't out to fix Bernadette just because it makes his life easier in a way, but because he wants his wife back. He wants to have that connection with her again, and he wants her to be vital and fulfilled. So I sensed a little more, I suppose, remorse in him maybe than you did. And I love how delicately the scenes with him and Nelson, 
the daughter are handled later after Bernadette leaves, where they're not completely overwrought with tension, though it's there, but they're also not overly touchy-feely. I think about the moment where he calls her Buzz, because, of course, they call her B, and so that's a little nickname. But we've only heard, in the moment, I was thinking, I've only ever heard Mm -hmm. Bernadette, her mother, call her that. He's never said that, and she snaps at him and says, don't you dare call me that. That's something mom calls me. So I think, again, shades and complexity in a lot of these family exchanges. Yeah, I'm glad the movie spends time with just the two of them to show that they have a very different dynamic. And in that way, I guess it's sort of backing into his culpability instead of it's showing that the reason they have such a different dynamic is because he hasn't been around as much. He yes. hasn't been as attentive. And I agree, it's completely in the in the performance. The word that came to mind to me during that scene with Greer, the therapist, is sorrow. You can see the sorrow on his face about this entire situation. Um, I think maybe plot-wise and narratively, for me, it positions him a little bit as not having as much responsibility and becoming the rescuer. And I know practically he sort of has to. The other thing I do like about his character, though, you mentioning that he can be severe on screen, he's playful at work. Yes. And I think... That's crucial because it shows us that this is something as much as architecture used to be for Bernadette, this work with Microsoft is for him. Mm -hmm. And so that's helpful for what I wanted to get to about the ending. I really like this movie's portrait of marriage, how it eventually gets to it. And when we think about marriage in films a lot of times or romances in general, it's that this person has to, what, complete the other person, right? They're going to make them happy just by who they are. And there's there's sort of like, there's nothing outside of those two people. When in reality, and what this film I think really emphasizes, is that it's more to be a cheerleader of the other person, mm-hmm. to support them, give them the space and the opportunity to be their best selves, whatever yes. that might mean. Absolutely. And so for him, it, it his work at Microsoft is good. Maybe he let it, he gave it too much space himself. But also for Bernadette, without this creative outlet, without him supporting her to to be able to be mentally in the space to pursue that, she can't live. She we see that. Like she just can't live. And they find this space together at the end where that becomes kind of the point of their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, B, their child, is a, is a – they talk about her as a miracle – and I was almost going to say project, but it's somewhere in between. She, she's this miracle that Bernadette and he created together. It's something they can work on together. It gives them as much – meaning in their lives, and it's a shared thing, but they also have those things individually. And so their jobs are to let each other pursue those and be encouragers in that pursuit. That was just, that was very, it's hard, this isn't an, it gets a little mawkish at points, but it also has inspirational bits. And I think that was one for me that really, um, really registered. Yeah, it did with me as well. I think you said it very well. And it kind of ties in with some of the things we've been discussing and may discuss more here in a little bit with this Dietrich von Sternberg marathon, which is how do you engage in a romance? How do you truly partner with someone but retain your individuality? And this movie suggests that that's the only way you should go about it. That that whole idea of completing someone suggests that without the other person, you're incomplete. And the reality is both of these people could lead vital, fulfilled lives on their own, but they're better when they're together. And I think the ideally, movie does, yeah. yeah, ideally make that clear. Are you going to call me out for the fact that I'm being so positive about this movie and I didn't even want to review it? 
I didn't even want to see it. That, that's just your. You tried to revoke my Linklater card. That's just card. your rev, regular anxiety showing. This is true. And so <laughs> I kind of p- tossed that aside. No, I almost had my Linklater card revoked. And I will admit, you mentioned that it does get to a point, maybe a little bit mockish. I didn't really feel that. I was definitely more on the, I suppose, inspirational or just plain moving side. And I admit, I might be a sucker for this material right now, as I imagine you might be as well. Literally today, as we're recording, my oldest son, Holden, started his senior year of high school. He started his first job, and he drove himself to high school. Changes. Big changes, right? And I'm <laughs> I'm already every day thinking about a year from now and him not being there. So those conversations and those concerns that we see in the way Bernadette one of the factors clearly leading to this kind of breakdown or this crisis that she's experiencing is the potential, the very real potential that B is going to leave. So that Board, all boarding school, yeah, she would for be boarding, going school. To boarding so school. So yeah. that all really did resonate with me. And look, you know, one of our goals here on the show is never to spend a whole lot of effort trying to tell people how to spend their money. But if you were like me and you like Link later, but were planning to stay away from this one, the trailer just didn't do anything for you, or you have seen the negative reviews and decided to stay away, maybe don't completely write off one of the best filmmakers we have working today. Yeah, and don't expect boyhood either, I no. would say. And let me let me just speculate to that point that maybe still a good chunk of reviewers are not in the same life place as where this movie exactly explores. Mm -hmm. You and I aren't exactly, but we are in middle life and we know plenty of women in middle life. And a lot of the struggles, the things that Bernadette is dealing with are familiar to me. I don't know them intimately enough to say exactly how truthful the movie gets it or how right it gets it, but they're very familiar. And uh, that made the wrestling with these things really resonate with me. And this brings us full circle to your opening question. Why would Linklater make this? Well, he's 10, maybe 15 years older than us. So he definitely, you know, he has known people who've already been through this stage of life. Maybe that's one reason he wanted to tackle this material is is that this this is something he knows well to some degree also. The story, the book resonated with him and it was an opportunity to explore it. Well, that ending that you like so much is really straight out of Boyhood. And there are probably other moments like it in Linklater's films, visually but visually, it's, yeah. it's straight out of it. Where'd You Go, Bernadette, is currently out in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Kate Blanchett is not eligible for the film spotting poll asking who is the decade-defining actress of the 2010s. We'll revisit the criteria and reveal the winner when we come back. Plus the third film in our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon, Shanghai Express. Stay with us. Well, I ain't your baby Even though I thought I'd be I ain't your only Maybe the only one who thinks that's so I ain't your first choice Maybe once upon a time When I was living with delusions at night No, you've got
See the world through John Malkovich's eyes? Yes! And then after about 15 minutes... That's not me! I didn't say that! You're spit out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're Malkovich's subconscious. Imagine seeing that trailer back in 99. John Cusack, Catherine Keener, a virtually unrecognizable Cameron Diaz, and that insane concept. A screenplay by credit in the trailer for Charlie Kaufman... Not a familiar name back in 99. It was his first feature. Now, of course, Josh, you were very familiar with Spike Jones because you were really dissecting the music videos of the Beastie Boys, Weezer, and the Notorious B.I.G. The first two, yes. Okay. But did you know they were directed by oh, someone yeah. named Spike Jones? Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah. I mean, that was like a music video star. You're so sure. Well, you were so hip. It was a long time ago. Years ago. Long time ago, Adam. Here we are 20 years later. Josh isn't as hip, but being John Malkovich <laughs> is in the conversation as one of the best films of that great movie year, 1999. Okay, so now I'll show you how out of it I was. Not on my top 10 list, being John Malkovich. Throw this the is, list out. This Throw is out. the first film, I think, in this series where I might really be reconsidering how I missed the boat. And that's not to say I didn't like it. I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Um, but yeah, didn't have it in my top 10. So Was we'll see. Some... Maybe, the, I don't know. We'll see what, maybe maybe I'll have a very good reason for that, Adam. What poorly made sequel did you like better than being John Malkovich that you put in your top 10? Being John Malkovich's, it was fantastic. <laughs> of course. The AV Club, as we're singing the praises of being John Malkovich and how it deserves to be highly ranked on any list of the best films in 99. The AV Club a few weeks ago got it right, or certainly close to right. I haven't completely re-ranked my 99 list yet. They did their top 25. I think we linked to it in our show notes when we first mentioned it about a month ago, and we will do that again if you are curious to seek it out. They had being John Malkovich as the number one, the best film of the year. And we should do that. We we should, when we get to the end of this series, is offer our, as we often do when we do year by year, yes. top fives is our top five then, what we would have had then, and our top five now. We should re-rank those. Do you have a top 10 from 99, though? No, or, I didn't oh, you don't publish have one then. I okay. think the first year I ever published a top 10 was 2001, maybe okay. 2000. So right after that. But I'm way ahead of you, at least on the re-ranking them now. I've started my private list on Letterboxd of my favorite 25 or 30 movies. Still have some work to do. We still have some movies to rewatch. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, when this series is over, we definitely need to do that. The series we're talking about is our 9 from 99 series. You can see the full lineup and the reviews at filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99. Being John Malkovich was a listener vote, the only listener vote in the nine films we selected. The other ones we've talked about so far, The Matrix, The Sixth Sense, and what am I missing, Josh? My number one of 99, The Blair Witch the Project. The Blair Witch Project. And so far, we have revisited those and discovered that we still like all of those films very much. The next two we have on tap could be interesting after Malkovich. Can't wait to rewatch the Kubrick Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. And we're going to see if we're going to ruin the streak. Some American beauty action. And then, wait, it gets better. One that did make my top 10, Phantom Menace. Oh, that's when it's going to get really good. I can't wait. Honestly, can't wait to revisit that film and try to see it through a Josh Larson's eyes. Oh, it's it's a great experience. It's a beautiful place to be, Adam. You're going to enjoy it. <laughs> that's not coming, though, until December. That's we right. are going to discuss that right before we get to the latest Star Wars entry. So, again, 9 from 99. If you want to follow along, 
visit the website, click on lists at the top, or go to filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99 and get ready. Do your homework. Don't read the book, Being John Malkovich, but watch the movie in advance of our discussion. Next week, in addition to Malcatraz, we will also wrap up our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon with 1934's The Scarlet Empress. Wait, I don't know. You, is Malcatraz a joke? Oh, yeah. It's okay. from the movie. Okay. See, I haven't seen it since, so <laughs> just wanted to make sure. It's one of my favorite bits in the movie okay. when he goes to Charlie Sheen's house and he calls him Malcatraz and he calls him Machine. Yeah, that's probably why it didn't make my top 10. See, I love the film, though I've only seen it once, I think. And yet, Impressive. that really did stick with me. So back to the yes, marathon. Sorry, I apologize Josh, for that. Filmspotting.net slash marathons. I think this is the first time in a long time, maybe ever, that we've actually gone through a marathon in four weeks. We haven't had any distractions, just knocked it out. Are you trying out. to jinx us? It could happen. It could happen. But we're going to get to that final film, The Scarlet Empress, and... The Marathon Awards, our favorite film, our favorite performance. Think Dietrich will get anything? <laughs> she might be a candidate. We might have to design a category just to award someone who isn't Dietrich. And we always need names for these awards. Now, Sam just threw out a few ideas. I think one of these must be a joke in reference to you, Josh. In particular, how much mm -hmm. you loved Gary Cooper's performance as Tom Brown, the Tom Browns. Yeah, he's just trying to provoke <laughs> Should me Should we just here. call him the Blands? <laughs> No, that wasn't even the problem. The cowpokes. The cowpokes. The, in, the inappropriate cowpokes. We have the rear guards, which if you've seen Morocco and know the end, which we spent a lot of time on, that reference comes through the can't help it. That will become even clearer if it's not clear already when we get to our discussion of Shanghai Express in a moment. And there's a final one. He threw in the moths, which we both have to confess we don't completely get. Maybe Sam watched ahead. Maybe it's a yes. reference to all of the those gauzy curtains or whatever we see that I think are supposed to keep the moths out in oh, is that what they're Shanghai doing? in at least these do they have a, camps or wherever they do are? They have a moth problem in Shanghai. I don't know. I don't know what Sam's going for, but all I'm of sure those a smarter listener knows. All of those also would make good band names. So well done, Sam. Though I'm not sure we're going to pick any of those for our. Dietrich von Sternberg Marathon Awards. Please give us some suggestions. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We did not want to miss an opportunity to acknowledge the passing of Peter Fonda. I still feel bad that Rutger Hauer wasn't acknowledged on the show. This was about a month ago. Mm -hmm. Delivers maybe the best cinematic monologue, dying monologue ever. Certainly the best in science fiction at the end of Blade Runner and definitely a big loss. And now Peter Fonda died here on August 16th. He was 79 years old, of course, son of Henry, brother of Jane, father of Bridget. Everyone's going to associate him first and foremost with 1969's Easy Rider. He co-wrote that movie and was the co-star. We did review it pre-Josh, pre-Larson, as part of our new Hollywood marathon back in 2009, Fonda was later Oscar nominated in 98 for his performance in Yuli's Gold. Kind of a comeback for him, and he delivered a memorable turn in Soderbergh's The Limey in 99. Not part of our 9 from 99 series, but certainly could be. Now, I was relieved, little disappointed, but mostly relieved to go to LarsonOnFilm.com and discover that you did give a positive rating to Easy Rider. Oh, yeah. You did not seem to be overly enamored with it i think it just got a mere three stars out of four from a josh larson but yes we saw some comments pop up here and there on twitter obviously most people being 
gracious in the wake of Peter Fonda's passing, but some people questioning whether or not Easy Rider truly was this hallmark of cinema that some people make it out to be, whether or not it truly is, I suppose, a good film. And yes, it really is. I don't think it's just a movie that's notable for the way it was made and what it meant to the new Hollywood and establishing that back in 1968. I genuinely love the movie. Yeah, I mean, so a three out of four star rating, what does that mean? I mean, it's to me, I think its reputation, you're right, is more as a time capsule movie. But I think what's interesting about it is how it's it saw its own time and then saw the time ahead, mm-hmm. the time that was coming. And Fonda's performance captures a lot of that. Easy Rider is a movie that I came to very late because Fonda actually – first showed up on my radar with Yulee's Gold. I think that was a time, you know, late 90s. I might have still been in college. I'm I'm not sure. But, you know, just keeping track of the current cinema maybe more than the older stuff. And Yulee's Gold was getting a lot of attention, his performance itself, and and saw that, was really impressed by it, and then became aware of his legacy. Eventually made my way to Easy Rider. But if you have not seen much of Fonda's stuff, that's definitely the place to start. I mean, yeah. Easy Rider is where it was interesting to think about this in terms of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because there's that that line at one point where Dennis Ho- somebody throws out Dennis Hopper as an insult and they easily could have substituted Peter Fonda, right? I think he was as emblematic um, at that time of the new Hollywood and of mm-hmm. these new creative voices that were kind of pushing their way in. Interestingly, even though, as you noted, though he was also from Hollywood royalty. For sure. If you have seen Easy Rider and want to dive deeper into the filmography of Peter Fonda, or if you decide to start on this journey and get past Easy Rider, our friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show is a big fan of Fonda's directing debut, 1971's The Hired Hand. He describes the movie as an acid western. Of course it is. It is 2013 AV Club recommendation. He wrote at the time, the film may be a dated relic, but it's a relic that looks beautiful under the light. Vilmos Zygmunt, who did McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Deliverance, the DP on those films, is the cinematographer who did The Hired Hand. And Noel Murray did a write-up for The New York Times with seven great Peter Fonda movies that are available to stream. So in addition to Easy Rider, you can watch Yulee's Gold and The Limey. He also suggested Roger Corman's The Wild Angels from 1966 and the, quote, low-ambition 70s thrillers Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and Race with the devil. We'll link to Scott's and Noel's pieces in the notes for the show. Speaking of Scott and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that is the film that Scott, Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, and Tasha Robinson, although Tasha was offered this episode, they discuss Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the next picture show. It's part two of their Hollywood endings pairing. Previously, they talked about Hal Ashby's Shampoo from 1975, just finished today. The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode, really good stuff there. Their plans coming up ahead here, they're going to pair the new documentary, American Factory. This is about a Chinese-owned factory in Rust Belt, Ohio, with Barbara Koppel's landmark 1976 doc, Harlan County, USA. Adam, is this is this a pairing that you you threw your weight around in a sign huh. and said you guys have it to do this? It seems like it, right? Except definitely not the case, because until I read this earlier today, I didn't know that such a movie as American Factory even existed. And the fact that they're pairing it with one of my favorite documentaries ever, 
Harlan County, USA. I can't wait now to watch this film and to listen to these episodes. American Factory did debut on Netflix just earlier this week. Maybe I was too busy going down the David Fincher Mindhunter season two rabbit hole. I didn't notice that there was anything else on Netflix, but American Factory is one I'm definitely going to have on the radar. More info at nextpictureshow.net, and you can listen to that show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, Massacre Theater is a regular part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Yes, but if we all have rests on a few moments in a library three and a half years ago, I'm not sure. Chucky, look. I don't know if... Look at me. Look at me. Well, the substitution of the name which I thought might actually be a little bit of a hint for people. A few other comments I made prefacing our performance, if you want to call it that, they didn't seem to help. A dearth of entries so far. I said anyone who entered would be my friend for life. Mm -hmm. A few people were excited about that prospect, Josh. I'll have you know. (laughs) That didn't bring a flood of of Maybe that's why they're not entering. You scared that they're like, maybe they're scared to enter. If I win, I'm going to have to hang out with Adam all the time. He's going to email all the time. Retract that and we'll get more entries. Okay. So I take it back. The 17 of you who have entered were friends for life. There's no escape. (laughs) But everybody else, you're safe. If you enter, I really do hope you recognize the scene because here's the hint. It's a movie I adore. I don't know how much of a hint that is, but if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that this is a film that I appreciate a lot of proportion compared to most. If you recognized it, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is this coming Monday, the 26th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show. Now get in there, get them guts out. I don't want to. Sonny, there's a bunch of stuff that you're going to have to get over being scared of. I'm not scared. I just don't want to. Come on. Put your fingers in there. Time for some poll results. Some results to a deeply flawed film spotting poll question, to be exact. You heard Jennifer Lawrence there skinning and gutting a squirrel. Thanks for the audio, Sam. And a memorable early scene from Deborah Granick's Winter's Bone from 2010. Lawrence was Oscar-nominated for that performance. 2010, of course, the first year of the decade. And as we come to the end of this decade, there's a lot of talk about the films, the performances, and the actors that defined the last 10 years. So a couple weeks back, we asked you, who is the decade-defining actress of the 2010s. Anytime a poll question like this one requires that we explain our criteria, it's probably a poll question we shouldn't have asked. (laughs) Of course, we will never actually follow this advice. Yeah. Maybe let's try it. Just just maybe (laughs) once. What fun is that, Josh? So that criteria that Sam, and I'm not throwing him under the bus. This is just a fact. I think Sam alone came up with. This was his way of whittling down the options. He spent a lot of time on this. I mean, really, this was like a Jekyll and Hyde thing following him on Slack going back and (laughs) forth. Sustained commercial and critical success throughout the decade. And the 2010s had to be the first decade of that sustained commercial and critical success. Which is why Kate Blanchett. Exactly. Is not eligible. Okay, so the options we gave you were Amy Adams, Jessica Chastain, Jennifer Lawrence, Scarlett Johansson, Lupita Nyong'o, Kristen Stewart, Emma Stone, or you could go other. 
How did it come out, Josh? Well, in a sign that perhaps this is not as deeply flawed as we thought, Other is in last place with 3%. Lupita Nyong'o after that with 4%. Kristen Stewart at 7%. Scarlett Johansson, 9%. Emma Stone, 11%. The top three here. With 12% of the vote, Jessica Chastain. Then a jump up to 25% of the vote for Amy Adams, but winning it is Jennifer Lawrence with 29%. A lot of good feedback here. We'll see how much we can get to. Jake Skubish in Washington, D.C. says, I saw the note in the Film Spotting newsletter to vote for the decade-defining actress, and it got me thinking, we can quantify that pretty easily. Oh, Jake. Math. It's always about the math, Josh, your favorite. Sam laid out specific parameters, so I did the following. I took each actress's five highest-rated movies on Metacritic and averaged them. I took each actress's five highest domestic-grossing movies, according to thenumbers.com, and averaged them. I converted those two numbers to the same scale. And he explains what that means. I'm going to avoid that for now so I can keep you engaged, Josh. Yeah, and sorry, what are... Jake, are we still doing the show? Jake averaged those two numbers so that they were both on a scale of 100, giving him a composite decade-dominant score. Ta-da! A simple metric to tell you who defined the decade. And here were the results for the options in our poll, according to Jake's formula, the algorithm. He mm-hmm. put it in. Now, I want you to actually go in opposite order here. Let's do it like we do the poll results, because this is a pretty surprising top finisher, I think. So build up the suspense a little, Josh. Okay. So in last place, according to this algorithm, is Kristen Stewart. 47.8. I don't even... Skittles, I guess she got. Emma Stone, 51.2. Jessica Chastain, 51.3. Amy Adams, 53. Jennifer Lawrence, 58. Then there's a jump here in these scores that I don't understand. Scarlett Johansson, 70.4. But winning... The decade dominance yeah. algorithm is Lupita Nyong'o with 71. How about that? So having hardly listened to anything you said, I'm guessing this is just a Star Wars skewing, right? Well, Jake does acknowledge that. Okay. He says that does include her completely unrecognizable turns in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. That's helping her box office number. But hey, she has the credit. So, you know, maybe we could do a little bit more parsing of the numbers here and see how it comes out. We will not go through all of the entries here, Josh. Again, in deference to keeping you awake. But Jake says, I was also curious to see if anyone you left off could beat those numbers. So let's just go with some of the ones who would have emerged ahead of the people we did list. Elizabeth Olsen, 63.2. Being in a lot of Marvel movies, obviously, really helped that. Makes sense. Zoe Saldana, same, 62.2. Brie Larson, 57.3, also same. Daisy Ridley, 56.5, Star Wars. Tessa Thompson, 55.5, the MCU. Gal Gadot, 50.1, DC. And we'll end here, my beloved Michelle Williams, 49.6. So she would have only finished just ahead of Kristen Stewart yeah. in our poll options. Anyway, Jake says, I could go on with this forever. And really, Jake, I hope you do. Start a podcast. Josh is going to subscribe to it. I think Jake just did my taxes. He could. He could. But he says, I've already spent way too much time on it. So no. far, I can't find anyone else that comes close to Lupita. I hope you enjoy this. I enjoyed it immensely. Oh, thank and you, And so Jake. did Sam. Thank you for all your hard work. Let's hear from Will Krischke. No math. Let's hope he doesn't drag math into this. It's uncanny how well Jennifer Lawrence's career syncs up with the basically arbitrary framework of this poll. She burst onto the scene in 2010 with Winter's Bone, was a major headliner, and made some pretty solid choices for the first half of the decade, followed by more questionable choices and a couple really bad movies in the second half. As the decade draws to a close, her star has faded a bit, but I feel like she's poised for a comeback. 
And that feels like a parallel to the decade in America as well. We were just hitting our stride in the Obama years in 2010. The economy was recovering from the housing crisis, and optimism was pretty high, as it looked like maybe we were leaving behind some of the darker aspects of our cultural past. Then there were some questionable choices, some really bad moments in the second half of the decade, and now I'm hoping we're poised for a comeback as a nation. Only time will tell. J-Law gets my vote. Wow. Yeah. Only J-Law can save us, apparently. Apparently. Andreas McGrail writes in, no math here, but definitely some processes of elimination. After considering all of them, my vote must go to J-Law. Not for being the best actress, that would be Amy Adams. Not for being my favorite, that would be Jessica Chastain. Not for giving the best performance in the best of the movies they have played in the 2010s, that would be Lupita Nyong'o. But defining the 2010s means that you have to look at the movies they each have done during the decade, and Jennifer Lawrence is setting the bar the highest... So she gets my vote. Here's Brady Larson. Larson with an E, fellow Norwegian. I agree that J-Law probably defined the decade. But in terms of quality, I'm giving my praise to Greta Gerwig, who gave three Oscar-worthy performances this decade. Frances Ha, 20th Century Women, Mistress America. And then wrote Frances Ha and went on to write and direct the best film of 2017 in Lady Bird. And with Little Women coming out soon, she may finally close the decade with an Oscar-winning film under her belt. Let J-Law define the 2010s. Greta Gerwig owned them. Love it. Love it. I really am a big fan of that pick there, Brady. And curiously, looking back at Jake's math, Greta did not make the cut. Out of the 25 actresses he ran the numbers on, she didn't make the cut. Might be in a larger spreadsheet, Josh, that he can send Probably. you. Probably. Jake Albrecht in Watertown, Connecticut says, The question isn't best, but most decade-defining. And for good or bad, the 2010s has been defined by the dominance of superhero movies in general and Marvel movies specifically. Scarlett Johansson is not the most talented of those listed, but she is the decade-defining actress as the main female component of the Marvel Universe. Iron Man 2, Avengers, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Avengers Age of Ultron, Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Endgame. She even pops up briefly in Thor Ragnarok. This one's from X Alexander. I balk at Scarlett Johansson being allowed if Natalie Portman is not because both had notable roles back in the 90s and both had commercial and prestige hits in the 2000s. So my pick is other, Natalie Portman. Portman kicked off the 2010s by winning Best Actress for Black Swan, which remains a ferocious and fearless performance in a film that easily could have devolved into camp with the wrong lead. She entered the MCU when it was still on the ground floor, but didn't let that suck up all her energy as a performer. She did a stoner comedy with David Gordon Green and a couple of Terrence Malick's tone poems. She was a brilliant badass in one of the decade's most complex sci-fi films, Annihilation, and a train wreck pop chanteuse in Box Lux, which somehow wove together the concurrent 2010s themes of celebrity narcissism and mass shootings. And in 2016, her Jackie Kennedy wandered despairingly through the White House in blood-spattered Chanel, perfectly capturing the hopeless horror so many of us felt at that moment in the wake of a very different presidential catastrophe. And I believe Portman differs from those that made the cut in one other definitive way. She stepped behind the camera to write and direct 2015's A Tale of Love and Darkness. Granted, the film was little seen. But in a decade that has made a pivotal turn toward encouraging and enabling women to make films, it feels right to honor an actress who seemingly brushed off the superhero franchise to make a film herself. Let's hope Lucy in the Sky, coming in October, is a worthy cherry on top of Portman's definitive decade. So, as I mentioned, a ton of great feedback here. 
in brief summary, Josh, Jamie says Melissa McCarthy deserves to be part of this conversation. Jackie F. says she had to write in Viola Davis. Danny Cox was surprised not to see Kerry Mulligan not mentioned. And Jordan Wellen in Toronto says it has to be Amy Adams. No other actress has her range, her eye for selectivity in roles, or her plaudits. Six Oscar nominations in 13 years is quite a feat. Indeed, it is. Finally, though, we will close with Kevin White here in Carroll Stream, Illinois, who says, I like Kristen Stewart for this. Her transition from that blank stare, monotonous star of the Twilight series to Cesar winning Aseas Muse, an indie film cinephile-approved screen crush, is the decade in film personified. Just as we've seen directors of our favorite film school indie hits find mainstream success directing comic book movies and Star Wars sequels, the lines between popcorn trash and the kinds of movies cinephiles get excited for and talk about have all but disappeared. I'm old enough to remember when everyone thought Stewart and her sparkling vampire co-star were thought to be two of the worst actors of all time, and now they're considered by many to be among the best of their generation. If anyone on this list underscores the way film has managed to become both franchise-dependent and still surprising and vital, I think it's Kristen Stewart. And if that argument doesn't convince you, just know that later this year, we'll see her on screen playing both Gene Seberg and one of Charlie's Angels, which I think we both saw that trailer. Josh, is it possible before Bernadette? We did. Unfortunately. That's the aughts in a nutshell, Kevin concludes, as far as I'm concerned. Again, so much great feedback. And for what turned out to be a film spotting trademark, deeply flawed poll question, it provoked a lot of good responses. I even forgot, Josh, one more. Someone named Sam, not Van Halgren, wrote in, voted for Mira Sorvino. So we're all over the place. Surprise. With actresses other. from the 2010s. Hmm, okay. Let's get to this week's poll question, which is not as deeply flawed. It may not be as fun either, but... We will see when we get the feedback. We're looking ahead a couple of weeks to our fall movie preview. That show will post the same weekend of the Toronto International Film Festival, the weekend that event kicks off. It's the unofficial gateway to the fall movie season and the final craze sprint to the end of the movie year. So we're asking you simply, which film playing this year's TIFF are you most looking forward to? A bunch of options here. Let's start with A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. This is the Mr. Rogers biopic, stars Tom Hanks, directed by Marielle Heller. She made Diary of a Teenage Girl and Can You Ever Forgive Me? Then there's Jojo Rabbit. This is Taika Waititi's anti-hate satire starring Waititi himself as Hitler. Joker, of course, stars Joaquin Phoenix. Knives Out, which is Ryan Johnson's whodunit, his follow-up to The Last Jedi. There's also The Laundromat, which stars Meryl Streep as a widow who gets caught up in a money laundering scheme. Oh, it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. The Lighthouse is the new one from Robert Eggers of The Witch. It stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. There's also Noah Baumbach's The Marriage Story. This has Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a couple whose marriage is falling apart. Parasite is Bong Joon-ho's Palme d'Or winning film about class warfare in South Korea. And just a couple more here for you. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This is Celine Sciamma. She made Girlhood and Tomboy, who won the screenwriting prize at Cannes for the film. It's about a painter living on the isolated island of Brittany. And then Uncut Gems comes from the Safdie brothers who made Good Time. Adam Sandler, how about this, is the star. I think Robert Pattinson was their star in Good Time, and now they're moving on to Adam Sandler. Should yeah. be interesting. Now, if those options, all 17 of them, don't appeal to you, you could go other, something that we haven't mentioned or aren't about to mention. But how about Craig Brewer, who made two movies that early film spotting hosts adored, Hustle and Flow and Black Snake Moan, but then follow that up with a pretty poor remake of Footloose. He's got Dolomite Is My Name coming out, starring Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy back. Yeah. 
I'm excited. Or you could maybe be excited for Christian Bale and Matt Damon in James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari. So, Josh, you are walking into the multiplex. All of these movies are playing, but this is my test. And this really, as I applied it while you were talking, I realized that it changes my answer. You're walking in. All of these movies are playing. You can only go see one of them. And all the other ones, you will never see. You will never, never have them. a chance again. Okay. You can only see one. Well, I'm influenced by seeing recent trailers for some of these. Okay. And boy, that Joker trailer is really strong. But I got to say, and I've liked some of his films well enough. Todd Phillips as director, it just doesn't seem like a match. So I was leaning that way, but I don't think I'm going to do it. It might have it might have to be Knives Out. I mean, to, mm-hmm. if you're going to just say you can't see any of them right. ever, it might have to be Knives Out. Knives Out was going to be my choice, though stiff competition with Jojo Rabbit just to see what Taika Waititi actually does with that movie where he's playing Hitler. Of course, the Safdie Brothers film is one I'm really curious about, and Parasite, fan of Bong Joon-ho, and it did win the Palme d'Or. But if I could only see one, I realized this is how much... I'm enthralled by and intrigued by Joaquin Phoenix. You're going to go Joker. I don't want to miss. And it's not even because I have a certain infatuation with that character or the mythology behind it. No, but what I he's just doing in that trailer. what he is going to do with it. And from what I've seen in the trailer, that just makes me even more curious. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. So I, I think get I'm it. going Joker, but I like your Ryan Johnson choice as well. We'd love to hear your picks. You can vote now in the poll at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from and be thinking about your questions about the fall movie season. We'll get to that list in a couple of weeks. Madeline. Well, Doctor, I haven't seen you in a long time. You haven't changed at all, Doctor. Well, you've changed a lot, Madeline. Have I, Doc? You mind me calling you Doc? Or must I be more respectful? All aboard the Dietrich von Sternberg Marathon. It's the third movie in our lineup. Dietrich there with Clive Brook in 1932's Shanghai Express. Dietrich plays Shanghai Lily, who is a courtesan on the rail line traveling from Peking to Shanghai. Along for the ride is another courtesan, Hu Fei, played by Anna Mae Wong. And just by chance, the doctor on board is her former lover, Dietrich's former lover, Donald Doc Harvey. Their relationship, we find out, ended five years earlier when Lily, then Madeline, played a trick on him as a way of testing his love. This movie was the highest grossing film of 1932, the biggest commercial success of the Dietrich-Von Sternberg collaboration, nominated for Best Picture, Von Sternberg nominated for Best Director, and Lee Garms won the Oscar for Best Cinematography. I have a feeling we both might be in support of that choice without even knowing who the other nominees were. As we do, we're going to start off this discussion with our friend in South Bend, Indiana, the great professor, Nathaniel Myers. Going into this week's film, I had been thinking a lot about your discussion of Morocco and the various ways that film seemed to underserve its star and director, thanks in part to the underwhelming co-star and to a narrative that maybe didn't fully earn its grand final gesture, both to the diminishment of Dietrich's otherwise strong-willed character and in spite of all its visual splendor. 
I think it's possible to feel that Shanghai Express commits similar sins, with sometimes clumsy dialogue about the relationship of love and faith, and a slightly awkward late film tonal shift from romantic melodrama to almost playful tale of pursuit, to say nothing of its orientalism and use of yellowface. All of these elements could, I suppose, take away from yet another wily, bewitching performance from Dietrich, as well as from what is perhaps von Sternberg at his best, all frames within frames and tracking shots down corridors, shadows and light, and protracted dissolves. However, I also found myself swayed by film scholar Homei King in her fantastic interview, included in the Criterion set, who urges us not to deny this film's problem areas, but also not to hold the film to the standards of realism, urging us instead to look at it as fiction, quote, which it is, pure Baroque, mannerist, candy confection artifice, and then from there, think about what the film is doing. So, for instance, Amy May Wong's character, yes, exhibits certain problematic racial stereotypes. But she's also a formidable figure in her own right, one of two women in the film, along with Dietrich's Shanghai Lily, whose force of will will not be bent to that of men. I would say that at least in this specific regard, Shanghai Express feels thus like the anti-Morocco. So, I'm interested in hearing the experience you both had with the film. Did you also find certain areas of weakness, and did they at all impede in your enjoyment of Shanghai Express? Or did you find yourselves acknowledging those problem spots, but then appreciating Dietrich and von Sternberg's, quote, candy confection artifice nonetheless? Thanks, guys. Thank you, as always, Nathaniel. Absolutely, I think anyone watching this film is going to recognize the problematic elements, but for me... I don't know about you, Josh, they definitely weren't a distraction here. And it's something that I was talking about a little bit with our producer, Sam, on Slack earlier today. He adored this movie, five stars out of five after he watched it today on Letterboxd. And I think he really nailed it. He said that maybe because it seemed to come more from the racist slash flawed characters than from the film itself. And I think there is some truth to that. But also beyond just being a product of its time, I agree with what Nathaniel mentioned that von Sternberg is so uninterested in reality, actual geopolitics, revolution in China, that you really do have to view Shanghai Express through his ostentatious lens. All of these films we've seen so far have been rooted in fantasy. You take the exotic settings, right? Morocco, China here, the train itself becomes its own world with its own set of rules, not unlike the Blue Angel with those expressionistic touches and like the train, the club is another world, an escape from school and from more traditional societal institutions. I think even just looking at Dietrich and the way she dresses in all of these films, she oh, comes in out of another galaxy. We got to talk right? about that. Yeah. You really do. So she's more exotic just in her appearance than any of these locations. But to cut to the chase here, I definitely think this is the best film of the marathon so far. And the argument I'm going to go with let's see if it works on you, Josh, is that this is the movie where we finally achieve balance, artistic balance and storytelling balance. Both the Blue Angel and Morocco, we felt were rewarding and they had moments of brilliance, but there was something a little bit lopsided in both. In the Blue Angel, no matter how much we disagreed a little bit, but no matter how much we do or don't pity Raph, the professor at the end of the film, Dietrich's Lola is basically a femme fatale. We never really understand what's motivating her feelings for him. And von Sternberg is focused more on the madness that she provokes in Wrath and his fall. 
Despite that, it was Dietrich who eclipsed von Sternberg for us as the artist we couldn't wait to see more from in the marathon. You go to Morocco, their filmmaking elements, I think, are definitely more sophisticated than we see in The Blue Angel. But Dietrich, again, shined brightest, despite being hobbled by a script and a performance by Gary Cooper that never really stoked any romantic passion. And here, Dietrich's Amy is the one at the end who subordinates herself to the man, makes the ultimate sacrifice, resigns herself to a life following him. And that brings us to Shanghai Express. Nathaniel said it, her will simply won't be bent for a man, even one she loves dearly, which doesn't just make her a more complex feminist character. It makes her a more complex character, period. And it makes the central romance and conflict between her and Doc so compelling, I think. So Shanghai Express elevates Dietrich's character without reducing Clive Brook as Dr. Harvey. But we also see von Sternberg's craft elevated. I saw your two-word review on Letterboxd, Josh. You asked if it was peak Dietrich, I think rhetorically. In this marathon anyway, this is peak Dietrich merging with, for reasons I'm sure will detail, peak von Sternberg. I think it's each artist and their respective styles coming together to create something distinct and really dazzling. Well, that's why I'm going to probably disagree with your take while loving the film just as much. I think what's so great about this movie is it's so far out of balance. Like, it's to the point where story almost doesn't even matter. And Style's I, more I important. Take, yeah, I take your I take your point that von Sternberg, for reasons we will get into, how he is crafting her persona. Mm-hmm. But for me, this is just her completely shifting all the balance around her. Just it, it, she's just in a positive way a black hole for everything else in this movie with his help, of course. Um, but this is the first time I realized thinking about all the chemistry talk we had about Gary Cooper, that didn't even really matter because here I agree with you. I think that Clive Brook is a better presence in this film, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that she has more chemistry with him. Her chemistry is with the camera. And what has happened here is she has, and this isn't exactly, there were, they did another film between these two. Um, so we're not following Dishonored, this. Yeah, we're not following this like step by step by step. But this is where she has exactly coming to her own, again, with von Sternberg's help and assistance and him wanting the same thing, where Dietrich is always just going to play Dietrich at this point. I mean, it doesn't really matter who she's opposite. Um, I, I think if we had gotten this Dietrich in Morocco, we might have even been less bothered by Gary Cooper because she would have just swallowed him up in the black hole. Huh. Um, this ability to perform I can think of very few other stars who are so aware in their actual performance, in what they're doing on the screen, of their star status. And so that every time she lets a little smile go after a great line, it's for us. Every time she spins with a flourish to get to a different place on the Mm -hmm. screen, it's for us. When she lights a cigarette, it's for us. She is not in rhythm with the person. And yet she's somehow subtle about it, <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, I'm probably making it sound too over the top. It's right. not over the top. It's not that These theatrical. are very small gestures that she's making. But I guess the difference I would say about it is that it's not in rhythm with the other person on the screen, really. It's not in reaction to them in the way we traditionally think about um, two-person scenes. It's all for the camera and for us. And that's 
all to the good. I'm not making a complaint sure. about it. I think it. we've seen it through all three films we, so far. I, we've just seen it building yeah. and building. And then here is where von Sternberg comes in and the cinematography, which you mentioned. They are creating these spaces. They are fantasy spaces. They're almost runways. It it doesn't matter who else is, this, is in the scene because at some point, the only light we're going to get is the soft circle that she steps into. Mm-hmm. They're providing that for her. And again, it's just excluding – it's throwing the whole thing out of balance in a way that's delirious because it's excluding anyone else on the screen, any narrative we thought we had. And it's all about this one small moment and it's about her. What have you been doing, Donald, since I saw you last? Nothing much, mostly service routine. A couple of years in India after our smash-up. And I went back to England for a while, and I was assigned to a scientific expedition in Manchuria. Sounds as if you had been rather lonesome, Doc. I can't say I was very lonesome. It was an active life, full of interest and excitement. I suppose you mean women. It was difficult to find someone to take your place. Did you try very hard? Not particularly. I didn't want to be hurt again. Always a bit selfish, Doc. Thinking of your own hurt. I can't accept your reproach. I was the only one hurt. You left me without a word, purely because I indulged in a woman's trick to make you jealous. I wanted to be certain that you loved me. Instead, I lost you. I suffered quite a bit, and I probably deserved it. So we're saying basically the same thing, just coming at it from a different angle, perhaps, because I'll counter with a moment where you absolutely see just how much von Sternberg and Dietrich are in sync with each other here and where you really see the artistic match. And it's an early shot in the film. I think it's just after the train has gotten rolling and we are getting another tracking shot kind of like the one it opens with but this time it's going past the doors the cabins that the people are in so we're seeing some of the different faces who are going to populate this movie and the camera doesn't get to the end of those tracks and stop on marlena dietrich the camera gets to the end of those tracks and i mean the tracks that the camera is Mm -hmm, on of course mm -hmm. and it's stopping it's coming to a stop just as dietrich is rounding the corner Mm -hmm. and appearing, emerging into the frame, almost out of silhouette into the light. Everyone else is shot the exact same way, and she is captured just in this graceful moment as she walks into the frame. Like, the timing and the choreography of that is just such a wonder. The lighting's not for the set. No. It's for her. It is. (laughs) Every scheme in the film is about her. But he gives her those moments. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not trying to discredit him at all. And as as long as we're sharing credit, um, let's... Let's talk about the costume designer because Travis Benton, um, I probably should have looked into this sooner, but I he he has worked with von Sternberg and Dietrich on almost all their films, not on the Blue Angel. Um, and this you you said it. The designs he puts her in here. I think, you know, costume has we talked about the top hat and the tuxedo sure. in Morocco. Being it, provocative. It's not, yeah, it's not new um, to their filmmaking, but the things she gets to wear here are absolutely at another level. And probably the one she wears that bookends the movie, the first time we see her at the train station is it's a black dress, but it's just adorned with these pluming feathers that are coming up her arms all around her neck. Mm-hmm. And then this skull cap essentially that's made of the same feathers but they're kind of pasted down so it's tight all to showcase so her face will you know 
come out of those feathers that we notice that. So it's it's at once mesmerizing and unlike anything you've ever seen, but also not distracting from her at the same time. And then that's got to be a feat of design to pull that off. And then he gives her other ones. Like I think about that fur lined coat. She shows up at one point again, yeah. more fur yeah. than you've ever seen yes. all around her head. But it does the same thing. There's a, the softness of the fur allows the um, she's quite a bit thinner here from the other films, notably so. And so she has sharper features. Some of that is that her eyebrows are these thin pencil mm-hmm. lines at this point. So there is a sharpness to her. And I think, again, the softness of that costume design highlights her face. So Travis Benton is, you know, another creative element, another partner in creating sure. this this persona of who we think of as Marlena Dietrich. Yeah, without a doubt. Now, I'm going to go to a moment that doesn't rely so much on the costuming, but maybe is the standout single shot, single frame in this film. And it's that moment where it almost seems like she goes into a confessional and she has just had an exchange with Dr. Harvey and they have had some truths shared between them. And she now goes behind the closed doors and she kind of reveals her true self in this moment, the camera close up head on. And the way she is lit is almost as if this glow from heaven is coming down only on her. And there is this issue of religion and God that comes up in the movie, almost like this is a moment, I think, prefacing one later. We don't ever see her actually pray, right? But it we is suggested. Yeah, we see her try. In close up. But in this moment, she puts her hands together and we see her actually trembling in the shot in a way that it occurred to me watching this movie that despite how amazing Dietrich has been, Throughout all of these films, so many different levels to her performance and the way she can just own the frame. This, I think, is the most vulnerable we've ever seen her. This is a new Dietrich we get in that moment. There are flickers of it in Morocco, like my favorite scene where we see her drop everything and rush out of her engagement dinner where she has almost lost control of herself. But that's different than the type of true vulnerability she shows in that scene. So I feel like we're getting new parts of von Sternberg in this film stretching out a little bit. We're getting new parts of Dietrich as well. So I just love that vulnerability. I love the range she shows here because she still plays this character similar to the way she's played others where there's something cavalier about her, something as much as she is wounded and feels love. She also manages to stay above the fray a little bit. But here you really see how wounded she is in a way I don't think you see in the other movies. Yeah, and she she does have that cool and detached demeanor that we've seen before. But this brings us to sort of a non-Dietrich element of the film that we can talk about, but it's related to her performance. If you think about another instance where she lets that facade drop, that coolness and that detached nature drop, it has to do with Anna Mae Wong's character, Hu Fei. There's a point where, here we get into a little bit of a plot, where the train is held hostage by rebels, one of them who's on the train, a character Chang, played by Warner Oland. And at one point, he makes an advance on Lily. And she rebuffs him, manages to get out of the room. It's a very frightening sequence, but she manages to get out of the room. And she notices that Hu Fei is being dragged in as her substitute. And she kind of loses it Mm -hmm. at that moment in a way she hasn't before. That detached demeanor drops and there's a ferocity Mm. to her. And you get a sense that she knows exactly what she just escaped. For sure. Maybe she had faced it more in her past. She also seems to understand that this is something that Hu Fei has maybe experienced. 
And so, yeah, I wanted to bring it up as a note of performance about Dietrich, but also to give us a chance to talk about Wong, who was at this point already, you know, a rare non-white movie star in Hollywood and in some ways um, is given not much, is given a stereotypical part, but I think gives the second best performance in the film by making a lot of it. There's a moment of revenge she has on Chang, the character played by Warner Oland. And the movie, interestingly, also takes the time to sit and acknowledge the significance of the trauma she suffered at his hand. And that really surprised me because it could have been a lot less of that. It could have been just, basically, it could have been only about Lily, what Lily escaped. Um, But they give more attention to Hu Fei's experience than that, to the film's credit and definitely to Wong's performance. Mm -hmm. I had not seen Anime Wong in anything previously, so certainly was aware of her. Um, And yeah, I was just fascinated to see how good she was in this part. Yeah, want to talk a little bit more about some of Von Sternberg's artistic flourishes, because one that really stands out, I've got two or three here to mention, is... I suppose what would constitute as the action scene in the film, it's when the train is stopped and the soldiers overtake it. And rather than it being this flurry of action and it really being about the cutting and the activity, it's totally fitting that von Sternberg instead makes it way more poetic. And the way we see the soldiers overtaking the train is as they're jumping onto it from a distance and they're just completely silhouetted in black. There's just a light behind them and it becomes instantly a little bit creepy and ominous, but again, not really necessarily suspenseful in very a conventional theatrical. way. Yeah, very theatrical for sure. The dissolves in this film oh, yeah. so are great. something I don't remember him employing as much in the other films or employing to such length that here the dissolves are so slow that we get something I don't really recall seeing in a lot of other films, period, which is he manages to create new images out of the dissolves. In other words, it's not just about the transition. It's not just about a smooth transition or suggesting a passage of time or whatever effect you might be traditionally going for with the dissolve. But in the expanse of the dissolve, the transfer to the new image An actual new image is created, and the key one that I would point to is an early one in the film where we are seeing the corridor of the train. And the dissolve is cutting to a shot from, I believe it's on the tracks, with Chinese soldiers on the sides of the track. And he overlays them in such a way that it then looks like the Chinese soldiers are standing on the sides of the train corridor instead of just on the tracks. They're actually inside it, which is actually kind of suggestive of what is eventually going to happen. And I remember not too long ago, I think it was last year, watching David Lean's Brief Encounter, another mm-hmm. train-centric movie for the first time, and seeing the very same thing, where a new image would be created out of the dissolved, and thinking, wow, this must be some sort of landmark technique. And here we are, You know, that was 45. Here right. we are more than a decade earlier, and von Sternberg is already employing um, this. It's a real magic trick, and yeah. it's, it's beautiful. It is. Now, the framing as well and the way frames are employed within the camera frame, I think, is also really notable here. And you notice it probably even before this, but where it really stuck out to me was in the introduction scene, not to each character, but the introduction scene of the relationship between Doc and Lily, where the camera is, if I recall correctly, outside the train and it's looking in on them straight on and they're both standing next to each other and there's the frame of the window that 
is cutting them in half. They're both framed by their windows, but then they're cut in half. They're separated. And you realize, though, that they're probably inhabiting the exact same space. Mm -hmm. But somehow the frame cutting them in half does keep them at a distance, suggests that there is this divide between them. And you look at so many frames in this movie, not just those different train cars that we see where it almost becomes like us looking through windows at them, but, and I can't believe I'm going to use this word here, I don't think it's probably ever been uttered in film spotting history, the frames are often bifurcated so that it does just like in that instance, it separates the characters and it draws attention to the construction of these spaces. And I think it then also draws our attention to the construction that is whatever is separating these people, class, their standing in society, their race, perhaps. They're all artificial constructs, and he is constantly making us aware of that through the use of those frames. Yeah, you would think, you know, this being the first film we've seen, the first out of the three that didn't really involve any sort of nightclub atmosphere or theater atmosphere, that that element might have been lost. But in a lot of ways, he doubled down on it without the actual theater. Yeah, absolutely. And I am hesitant here in closing to suggest that this film somehow is truly an apotheosis of all of their work or their collaborations together because there's a few other films that we haven't seen yet and we're not going to get to as part of this marathon. But I do think, having watched three films, we can safely say that Von Sternberg is obsessed with the utter irrationality of love. And I do think Shanghai Express is the most complete, I suppose, exploration of that irrationality. I won't go into a full rehash of the other two films, but... We talked about Wrath and the Blue Angel almost not having a choice but to go after Lola. Gives up everything to go after her. And in Morocco, it's the opposite. It's Amy who almost acts like she's under a spell and just can't leave Tom alone and has to be with him. She can't perform. She can't eat and runs out of that dinner, as I mentioned. And Wrath starting as a professor, right? He's an academic. He's a man who relies on his head, not his heart. And we get here the doctor who is a man of science, who is a man of intellect, who believes only what he sees. And that's paired against not only Lily, but the missionary Carmichael, who believes, has faith, despite not being able to see what he believes in. I don't think it's probably by accident that Carmichael is always wearing glasses in the movie and that Dr. Harvey almost gets punished by being blinded. He's not being, Von Sternberg isn't being too subtle there probably with those suggestions. But that exchange they have, Doc and Lily, where she says to him, will you never learn to believe without proof? This is another little test of hers that's happening in this scene. And he says, I believe you, Madeline. And when she hands him the telegram that proves actually his faith was unfounded, she calls him out on it and says, when I needed your faith before, you withheld it. And now when I don't need it and don't deserve it, you give it to me. So again, examples of sacrificing for love. And in the other films, by making that sacrifice, we discovered that these two people who are in love can't really exist together as individuals. Someone is always going to have to subjugate themselves to the other. And I think here in Shanghai Express, it suggests an evolution of that. Well, people who treat romance and love as a game, first and foremost, I think is also a recurring motif. Yeah. And she's not always at – Dietrich is not always on one end of that equation. True. Talked about in Morocco how she's more mouse than cat. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly she still likes playing that game. And and you get the sense in any of these movies, if some of, if some of the pretenses, you watch them just wanting some of those pretenses to drop – 
and things might work out for them, but they just can't resist playing no, the game. You're right. Shanghai Express, a big hit here in this film spotting marathon. Again, five stars by Sam Van Hogren, and he has the best taste of any of us. Sorry, Josh, if you get a chance to see it, we would love to hear your thoughts. Probably not available as we have lamented throughout this marathon. Not available really on streaming. You can check it out if you do have the Criterion box set of Von Sternberg and Dietrich films, or I know, Josh, you have been watching these movies as well as other film spotting listeners, Sam included, getting them from your local library. Yeah, how about that? Little interlibrary loan. Easy enough. Delivered via the Shanghai Express all the way to the Chicago suburbs. Again, feedback at filmspotting.net. If you have any comments about Shanghai Express or the marathon or any other comments about the show, because Josh... That is it for this week. Indeed it is. But there's plenty more over at filmspotting.net. In our show archives, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know which film that's playing September's Toronto International Film Festival you're most looking forward to. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other Film Spotting merch, you can find it at filmspotting.net slash shop. If you want to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. And come talk to us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can find Adam at Film Spotting, and you can find me at Larson on Film. Out in limited release this weekend, opening here in Chicago after the wedding. This is writer-director Bart Freundlich's remake of the 2006 Suzanne Beer film. It stars Julianne Moore, my beloved Michelle Williams, and Billy Crudup. Very good, as we mentioned in Where Juco Bernadette. The Peanut Butter Falcon, also out, starring Shia LaBeouf, Dakota Johnson, Bruce Stern, and John Hawks, about a down-on-his-luck crab fisherman who embarks on a journey to get a young man with Down syndrome to a professional wrestling school in rural North Carolina. In wide release, Angel has fallen uncaged. No, it's not, actually. It's just Angel has fallen. We can only hope. Though it, it could work. Gerard Butler's Secret Service agent, Mike Banning, is framed for the attempted assassination of the president. There you go. What, Overcomer. What title couldn't be improved by just adding Literally, uncaged Overcomer, at the end. Uncaged. A basketball coach reluctantly agrees to coach cross-country. Okay, maybe not that one. You're right. There may be something missing from that plot description. Sorry, ready or not also out. Eccentric in-laws force a new bride to take part in a terrifying game. Now, come on. Ready or, ready not, or not, uncaged. uncaged. Way better. How long am I going to milk this joke? We will see. Next week on the show, as we mentioned, The Scarlet Empress, the final film in our Dietrich von Sternberg Marathon, and our 9 from 99 review of Being John Malkovich. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Lily May from the new album Other Girls. More information is at lilymaymusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.